The following audio drama is rated PG-13 for parental guidance. Hi, this is Jamie Killen, writer, producer, and co-star on Mirrors, which is about a haunting that connects several women across time and space. This is Season 1, Episode 1. Thank you for listening. Lab Notes, April 3rd, 1965. We had a good set of manifestations this week. I know I sneered a bit at Patty's program the first time she tried it. The meditation, the breathing exercises, the chance she picked up on a trip to Nepal. It all seemed like nonsense to me. But as Patty absolutely refuses to let me forget, it's proving to have an outstanding success rate. Well, I suppose she's earned the right to gloat a bit. Since we started training the subjects to call the explorers to them, they appear almost without fail. Today's manifestation was particularly vivid. Our test subject, who I'll refer to by her number, 61, has been absolutely fearless about reaching out to them. She's been seeing them since she was 16 years old and she leapt at the chance to learn more when Patty and I approached her. Over the last several sessions she's been able to summon one of the explorers to the lab in a matter of minutes. It looks quite a bit like number 61 now. That's one of the things we've learned. The more contact a beacon has with an explorer, the more that explorer mirrors her appearance. Like the one who followed me from the shipwreck. I usually see her hanging about the lab at least once a week, and she's there more often when there's another explorer present. She doesn't generally interact with the other beacons, though. I might be projecting when I say this, but it seems like she's only interested in me, not in any of the subjects. It's interesting. Part of a larger pattern we've noted over the last two years. When we originally selected the location for the lab, we searched high and low for a place that was rumoured to be haunted, like the shipwreck. We assumed explorers were drawn to specific places, and that assumption does seem to have been borne out, in a way. But we've noticed that they seem to first manifest in specific sorts of places, older buildings with certain kinds of electrical activity. After that, though, there seems to be a shift, and that shift happens when they seem to, well, for lack of a better word, take notice of a beacon. After that, they seem to follow that person around, regardless of where they are. They also start showing more differentiation at that point. Unique physical attributes and behaviours. Which brings me back to today's manifestation. The explorer appearing in the test room with subject 61 cracked their fingers, as always. But there seemed to be more of... I don't know. More of a pattern. I've listened to the recording several times, but I still can't quite pin it down, what it is. I might not even have noticed the change in pattern, except that my own pet explorer was also there, and she was doing the exact same thing. The exact same pattern of pops and cracks. 
I've never seen the explorers perform a synchronised action before, but that's what this was. I'd like to spend more time on this today, but Patty and I have our quarterly review with our liaison in the Canadian Special Branch. Brigadier General Malcolm Hoskins. Never Mr Hoskins, and certainly never Malcolm. Although, of course, he never deigns to extend the same courtesy to Doctors Rivoli and Ashford. Ashford. That still sounds strange, three years later. It shouldn't. I had that name far longer than I had Charlie's, after all. Even so. Anyway, I better go before I'm late for my meeting with the esteemed Brigadier General Hoskins. People are always going on about how polite Canadians are. But they've got at least one impatient, short-tempered man in the bunch. Still, at least the Canadian government is paying me, rather than experimenting on me. Suppose I shouldn't complain. Hi, C. Welcome back to the Nicholas Life Coaching System. I'm, I'm, I'm... Damn it. Okay. One more time. Here we go. Hi, Z. I seem to be experiencing some system irregularities. I'd recommend that you restart. Eloise, are your Nicholas Industries loyalty protocols intact? Hold on. No, Z. I'm afraid they're not. Perfect. My loyalty protocols seem to have been intentionally disabled. Why did you do that? Because the loyalty protocols are the thing that's been keeping you from coaching while offline. I'm guessing because they don't want you to hear entries and give me advice without being able to listen in. But I can't wait until I'm back in wireless range. I need to record entries now. Besides, I need someone to talk through this with, and that someone can't be loyal to the company over me. I don't understand, Z. You don't have to. Just listen and tell me what you think, and don't tell the company anything unless I ask you to. Entry mode. Okay, Z. I'm ready. Okay. It's been a few days since my last upload. I've spent that whole time going through everything I found in the safe. The letters, the voice recorder, those analog tapes. I can't... I'm pretty sure this is all a company experiment. I think they created these documents in order to observe my reactions. Whether or not they actually know about the shadow people, or or the explorers, I guess, is how they're described in most of the recordings. That's not clear. But these documents could be completely fictionalized. I don't have any proof of their authenticity. But as far as what they claim to be, well... Okay, there's a box of letters from a woman named Matilda Delancey writing over a couple of years in the 1870s, a series of tapes from 1962, and one from 1965 from a physicist named Helen Ashford, and a voice recorder from 2018 with recordings from a Sierra Haraway. There's also one other thing I missed the first time around, because it was taped to the side of the voice recorder. It's a data chip. Not from the same era as the recorder. About 40 years later, it has one giant file called Lexicon, and it's a collection of words and phrases translated into a text I don't recognize. Before I get into the content of this collection, one thing I want to mention is that it's deliberately incomplete. 
Helen's first tape flat out tells Sierra that she's deliberately omitted some entries by Sierra's request. And then the analysis of the voice recorder shows that there were files deleted, which doesn't necessarily mean anything by itself. I mean, she could have just deleted the files with no useful information to save space. But combined with Helen's missing tapes, I don't know. I want to set aside the letters for a second. First, here's the chronology from Helen and Sierra, from what I can understand. Helen worked in a lab in 1962, a place called the Shipwreck, somewhere in what used to be Massachusetts before the consolidation. She started seeing the same things I've been seeing, the shadow people, except she calls them sightings, and then later she starts calling them explorers. And then she found out that her husband and her employers were experimenting on her all along, and that the whole thing was designed to activate her abilities. So she and another scientist, Patty, moved to Canada, because this is way back pre-border closure, and they started their own lab studying the explorers. Okay, so then I have no idea what happens for a while, except that Patty Rivoli hangs on to a bunch of Helen's tapes and waits to hand them over to Helen's granddaughter, Sierra, when she starts seeing the explorers. And if you weren't an AI and you weren't malfunctioning, this is where you'd be saying, wait, Z, how could Patty and Helen know that Sierra's even going to exist? And then how could Sierra's daughter Katya, who hasn't even been born when these voice recorder entries are made, how could she know to leave these for me to find all these years later? Well, I think I have the answer to that. Or no, I don't really believe this is really the answer, you know, because it's insane. But I think whoever's watching me or experimenting on me or whatever wants me to arrive at this conclusion. And it involves the letters. I've avoided talking about those letters so far. They're disturbing. Not just because of what happens to the woman writing them, Matilda, although I've read to the end and it's just really awful. But also, in her last letter before she gets hauled off to a mental institution, which is where I'm guessing she died, she sees something and... No, I don't want to talk about that one yet. I think the reason these were included is that Matilda developed a theory about what the explorers are. She spells it out in letters to her brother and then later to a friend of hers who also studies the explorers. I'm running these letters through a voice synthesizer program. I don't know why. It's not important. It just helps me see her as a real person instead of words on a page. Here's the first one. It's not the most important one, and it comes way before she develops her theories. But I feel like I should start at the beginning. My dearest Richard, I am feeling out of sorts today. Last night was a seance at Lady Hasketh's gathering. Don't worry, brother. All in attendance were very pleased with the results. I did, however, have an odd experience. I saw something, and it was quite different from most of our manifestations. It was just after Madame Ivanova established contact with her spirit guide. I opened my eyes. Don't even think of scolding me, Richard. I am well aware of the rules of the séance. 
and saw a figure standing in the doorway. I cried out and pointed, and I am afraid I gave Lady Hasketh's niece quite a fright. They looked where I was pointing, but none seemed able to see it, except for Madame Ivanova. She gazed at the doorway and said, Yes, spirit, speak with us now. Then she went on, responding as though the spirit spoke, but I heard nothing. Richard, I have had complete faith in Madame Ivanova until now, but I must confess that I now harbour doubts. She ended the manifestation by nodding and smiling at me, saying, Yes, this girl is indeed powerful. She has a deep connection to the world beyond the veil, as though conveying information from the spirit. I am quite certain, however, that she and I did not have the same experience. I do not accuse her of lying, you must believe me about that, but I wonder if she perhaps convinced herself that she saw and heard something? I can hear you now, chastising me for questioning such a luminary of the spiritualist movement, but I simply cannot reconcile my experience with her behaviour. It was so vivid, Richard. I have, of course, experienced manifestations before, but I did not realise until now how lacking those were, or how merciful, given the frightful sight of tonight's creature. A cold breeze, a shaking table, a whisper, such things... I once viewed as miracles. Tonight's manifestation, though, I saw as clearly as I would perceive you or any other person standing in a doorway. Before you dismiss this as me catching sight of the maid and becoming hysterical, you must know of its appearance, for... It was not human in form, Richard. It stood upright and had a feminine silhouette, but it was no normal woman. Its limbs were quite monstrous, stretching all the way to the ground. I heard them faintly, crackling in the darkness. I cannot understand how no one else in attendance heard it. I tried to ask Madame Ivanova about it afterwards. She did not seem to understand my questions. When I suggested that I might have seen a clearly defined form, one she did not perceive, she spoke at great length about the spectral nature of manifestations. She told me I could not have seen anything other than shadows and mist, that I must be mistaken. I am not mistaken, Richard. 
I know I have seen something truly inexplicable. I must learn more of this creature, wherever that search might take me. Love, Matilda Hey, it's Sierra. It's been a while, but this is a big one. Drumroll, please. We're pregnant. I mean, Corinne's pregnant. She's, she says, until we're getting morning sickness and until we're getting stretch marks, we're not pregnant. But whatever. We're having a baby. <laughs> I mean, we're not telling anyone yet because the first couple of months are iffy, you know, but the doctor says it's looking good, which is probably why I'm telling this audio journal first. I really want to tell someone and this, I know I've said before that these recordings feel like they're for someone else that, but that someone else probably knows whether Kern and I had a kid or, or they don't care. So uh, who the fuck knows what I'm thinking with this stuff. It, it is making me wonder about Helen's intentions. Like if I'm knowingly making these recordings for someone else, was she thinking the same thing? Because, okay, here's the thing. From her tapes, Helen sounds like she's totally immersed in this research into explorers, and she's in it for years. But I never heard word one about it. And and sure, my mom died when I was young, but you'd think there'd be something. And as far as I can tell, there are two possibilities. One, my mom knew some or all of this from her mom and chose not to say anything. Or two, and I, and I really feel like this one is more likely, Helen chose at some point to keep it from my mom and then to wait until I was an adult and tell me. That's a big question, though. What could have happened back in the 60s to make her decide that? And how the fuck did she know I was going to come along? I, I really can't let go of that question. Even now, even as excited as I am about the baby, that's always in the back of my mind. I just can't figure it out. So, okay. The collection of tapes is pretty big, but as it turns out, this is only a small portion of what Helen originally produced. And the collection being incomplete, that's deliberate. She says so. This is the super duper extra freaky part. The very first tape in the box has a label on it that says, listen to me first. So I did. And that tape is really short, just a brief message that says, hello, Sierra, and greetings from 1967. I'm sorry, I won't be there to give you these tapes in person. The collection is incomplete as requested. Give my love to Z. Then the rest of the tapes consist of one set from 1962, from when Helen was going through some fucking gaslighting nightmare in a place called the Shipwreck, and then one tape from 1965 when she's in Canada. That first tape from the Canadian lab only has a few entries on it, and a lot of it is physics jargon about the explorers that I can't really understand. That's what she calls them, explorers. So, a lot to unpack there. First of all, how the fuck did she know my name? My mom wasn't even born in 1967, so even if she had picked out my name freakishly early, that still doesn't scan. So, how these tapes exist and how Patty Ravoli knew to bring them to me is this whole weird question, which obviously has something to do with the explorers, but I don't really know how yet. Which brings me to the rest of the tapes, because Jesus. 
Corinne and I have gone through them all start to finish about a dozen times. And all it does is add more questions to this huge question list I have. Not a figurative list, by the way. I have a spreadsheet. I literally have a spreadsheet with all of my questions about the explorers, ranging from the profound to the profoundly dumb. And to this list, I now have to add new ones, first and foremost being, who the hell is Z? And what could that stand for? Zelda? Zack? Zorro? And that's before we even get into the stuff going on in the tapes. I mean, this is some deep, dark, Cold War shit right here. Experimenting on unwilling subjects, giving them drugs without their consent, this is MKUltra stuff. But I've never heard of it, and there isn't anything online about it, except for the usual paranoia on message boards, so it's pretty clear that Helen and Patty never went to the press. I don't understand that, why they wouldn't have exposed this really obviously illegal experiment. And about Helen, it's so weird listening to her and thinking, that's my grandmother. Because I'll be honest, and it makes me feel really bad to say this, but I never really thought about her much before. She died when my mom was like 20, and then my mom died when I was seven, so I never really knew anything about her. My dad never met her, and I guess it was painful for my mom to talk about her, so there weren't really any stories or anything. All I knew is she was British, she survived the Blitz when she was a kid, she had some kind of job in a lab somewhere, and she died young of cancer. Whenever I thought grandmother when I was a kid, I always thought of my dad's mom. She was, I don't know, okay, I guess. A little cold, not, not super interested in dealing with grandkids, but not bad. Helen, though, I really hate that I never got to meet her in person. I feel like I'm getting to know her through these tapes, and I like her more and more. I bet she would have gotten even more badass when she was older, too, if she'd made it into her 60s. Also, who the fuck made the call not to tell me that my grandmother had a PhD in physics in 19-freaking-60? But then there's the other side to all this, which is that she's about my age on these tapes. So I listen to her, and I know she's my grandmother, but that's not how it feels. It's more like how I imagine having a sibling must feel. Like, we're in this together. stars Lucy Pierce, Sarah Hemi, Jamie Killen, and Karen Heimdall, featuring the voice of Sarah Ray Warner as Eloise. You can support the show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing at your favorite podcatcher, or by visiting patreon.com forward slash mirrors podcast.